you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Hello, everyone. Colin and Josh here from your Bare Naked Money podcast. And today we are exploring a little bit of a case study. Colin recently sold a home and real estate being as topical as it is these days, we thought it would be worthwhile to dive in. So Colin, how'd it go? What was the- I'm feeling particularly naked on this episode because we're going to be talking about me selling my family home. So in the interest of pure transparency, let's have at it. So we recently decided as my children left the home to sell the family home. So I thought it was an interesting example of real estate. As we purchased the home 17 years ago and we paid 173,000 for it. We put a $65,000 addition on the house in the form of a garage and an extra room. And it sold last week for $520,000 in this overheated market, which was over asking and we had competing bids. So that aspect of the story jives with how people are talking about things right now. But Josh, you're the CFA, you, you math way better than the rest of us. I, I made a couple hundred thousand dollars tax-free over, over 17 years. Was that a good <laughs> A loaded question there, Colin. So as you alluded to, I've been known to do some math from time to time and I do quite enjoy it. So I just ran some numbers based on the numbers that you just went through. So your rate of return over that, that 17 year period of time, 118%. So you more than doubled your money. Pretty good. So that's great. I should do that more. Let's, uh, let's break that down a little bit further. Let's go into this a little bit more. So per year works out to 4.7%. Not too right. bad. Still it's, you know, after tax money. So yeah, that's right. Tax-free baby. Yeah. Tax, tax-free. But let me ask a couple of questions, Colin. You paid commission on the sale? True. The net proceeds on the sale were closer to 490 or 495. Yeah. So probably about a 5% commission, which is pretty standard. So yep. yeah, you got to factor in your transaction costs whenever you're looking at this stuff. So after your commission costs, that knocks your rate of return on a per year basis down to 4.4%. Mm. Now you mentioned tax-free. It is it. I, Absolutely. The, the sale of your principal residence is tax-free, Josh. Okay. Yeah. No, no capital gains tax. That's for sure. But let me question a couple things for you. Did you pay land transfer tax when you purchased the property? Oh, that was 17 years ago, Josh. That doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the actual land transfer taxes are in Nova Scotia, but I know for sure we have uh, some pretty hefty land transfer taxes here in Ontario. And if you're lucky enough to live in Toronto, you don't only get the provincial land transfer tax, but you get the municipal land transfer tax as well. So not only are you getting dinged on the sale with the commission that's coming out of your pocket, but you're also getting dinged on the buy with a pretty hefty lump of money out of your pocket in terms of your land transfer tax. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what about property tax? Did you pay that? Well, insisted on it. So yeah, <laughs> so in order to keep my property, I did have to pay property tax on an annual basis. Yeah, okay. Okay. So do you have any estimate on what your property taxes and land transfer taxes were over that 17 year period? The property tax came in a little bit better than 1% okay. per year and okay. the land transfer tax was north of 1%. I can't remember exactly. E e easily a, a very strong 1%, maybe to one and a quarter. Okay. Good stuff. So I just factored in 1% for each of those things based off of your initial purchase price, which 
not exactly right. It gets us in the ballpark. Anyway, that, that knocks you down to about 4.3% rate of return. So still, not too, that's a pretty comfortable rate of return over a 17-year period of time. Thought we'd compare that to some other potential investments, potential places where you can put your money. So I'll give you a guess just in terms of, because this is a pretty specific period of time, 17 years. So Canadian stocks, the TSX composite, what do you think it returned on average over the last 17 years? And I'm still in character as the schmo who just sold us out. Okay, I'll, I'll go along with your game. Let, let's say 7%. Okay, so 8.1%. So you got about a double the return per year on a portfolio of stocks that you would have on your real estate over the last 17 years. So instead of getting 118%, 120 or so percent return, and that was the return before, after, all of those other expenses that I went through, you would have got about a 300% rate of return. So you would have tripled your investment instead of increasing it or, or quadrupled your investment rather than increasing it by about double. So pretty significant difference there for sure. Global stocks, 8.7% over that period of time. So even slightly better than Canadian stocks. Mm -hmm. Now this one, I thought this was interesting because Canadian bonds, over the last 17 years, four and a half percent, four and a half. So Canadian bonds outperformed your real estate experience on an after cost basis over the last 17 years. And that's a pretty low risk, safe investment, certainly less volatile than real estate or stocks would be. So it's interesting just to put that all into perspective. How does that make you feel now? It's funny. When we discussed doing this as a podcast, we wanted to make sure we put it in context. It's not, this is not describing real estate as a horrible investment or the worst thing ever, but it is a very, in my opinion, valuable case study on, it's just that, but to say, or to draw the conclusion from my experience that real estate investing is the best thing ever and it's how everybody gets rich may not be completely warranted. There are some great stories out there and there are people whose numbers are way better than the numbers we just discussed, but how much of that is chance versus how much of that can you really expect in, in this marketplace? So I feel okay because I raised a family and that, that was why I owned a house and that's why everybody should own a property to live in it. And it was a wonderful, beautiful, perfect place to raise a family. And I was able to get, you know, my money back out of it when I decided to go to the next chapter. So it did everything I needed it to do. And so I'm very happy with the transaction. And I'm even happier to share that with their audience to, to show myself as an example this time. Yeah. I, I think the position that we've been trying to take is you got to make sure that you're doing something or investing in something or buying something for the right reason. And if that is your goals, what they were back then, you want to raise a family, you want to hold on to that place for 10, 20 years, you're probably not going to care whether you got a four or five or 6% rate of return or 2% rate of return for that matter on your money or your real estate over the next 10 or 20 years. What we've been cautioning people of is real estate is not always the panacea type of investment that a lot of people make it out to be. We're talking about a pretty good period of time for real estate investment. And we just showed you what the rate of returns are. If we did this 15 years earlier, the period from say early nineties or late eighties to early two thousands in Canada, the experience would have been completely different. And we would have been a lot more experiencing a lot more dismal rates of return on the real estate over that period of time. Again, real estate can be a good investment. 
It can be a good place to put your money, especially if you have some personal or family goals for that piece of property. But in terms of, is this something that's always going to go up? Is it something that's going to go up exponentially better than everything else that's out there that you could possibly put your money into? The answer is no. We have a long history of that. And this is one case study that kind of helps us reinforce that idea. And, and, and just this point of an emphasis here, I probably got an extra hundred thousand dollars than I would have got a year ago by selling in the current frothy market. So the endpoint bias here is that there's a good, there's a good opportunity and it's a reasonable conclusion that I did remarkably better just because it happened to be this year. And this is just such a really strange time or a really awesome time to, yeah. to sell a piece of real estate. And we're neglecting to include a lot of different costs that may be involved with that real estate. We, we did talk about mortgage costs at all. We didn't talk about any interest payments that you're making. Colin, I think you, you did a few more rentals, right? I think you you ended up doing new floors twice, I believe, in the last couple of years. That happened. That's a thing. <laughs> That's a thing. New furnace maybe along the way, new AC, new roof, new windows. All of these things can really add up in terms of the cost of home ownership. And it's something that people often overlook when they say, oh, I bought my house for X 30 years ago and it's now worth Y. Yeah, but there was a lot of costs along the way that made that work. And it's been a good period of time for investments. So here's another one for you, Colin. This is going to be tough for, for you to wrap your head around. The one thing that I hear quite often is somebody, and my grandma used to do this all the time. I bought my house for $20,000. And can you believe that it's worth almost a million dollars today? 60 years ago, I'm just going to use some numbers that will give us a rough ballpark. So 60 years ago, my grandparents bought their house for about 20,000 bucks. They sold it last year for about 800,000. On a per year basis, any idea what your rate of return would be on that? No, Josh. What was the rate of return on that? 6.3% per year over that period of time. And that, again, that doesn't include commissions that doesn't include any land transfer tax that doesn't include the annual costs or maintenance or upkeep or anything like that along the way so 6.3 pretty good over that period of time right again you're not disappointed you're not crying you're not going home really sad but at the same time a big chunk of that period of time was double digit inflation and so that naturally is going to boost that number and I think when you, th when you think of, oh, my house is up 30, 40 times from where I purchased it in price, you immediately think, what an amazing investment. And when you break it down on a per year basis, you're just like, meh, stocks did better. So <laughs> just for perspective, it's always, it's hard for our human brains to think exponentially and in, in, in terms of compound growth. It's very hard. Absolutely. Which is why we rely on CFAs like you, Josh, to do the math because you, and you like doing it so much. Yeah. Cause my brain's not that human. Well, that's a whole other podcast. We'll save that for next week. Yeah. Good. But this actually is the next part of our conversation because it's become more topical and this, the impact on the potential of increased interest rates and the pressure that's potentially going to put on prices of homes going forward. And it's a material thing because many people are constrained by what payment they can afford. This is how much I can afford. Therefore, this, you do the math and this is the payment that, or this is the amount of capital that I can borrow. One variable there is the interest rate. And interest rates, again, over the last 60 years have dropped quite a bit, which has helped housing prices a lot. And we potentially, I'm not going to go on record to say it's going to happen because we've been talking about rising interest rates for the last 20 years and we haven't seen it. 
But when you talk about getting involved in something as an investment, you need to understand risk. And the risk of increasing interest rates is real. Now, whether it manifests itself or how it does, the future will play out. But I ran a couple of numbers just to play with you. So a $350,000 mortgage, if you're running that today and you've got it at a 2% interest rate over a 25-year amortization, your payment's about $1,480 a month. If that interest rate goes to 6%, your monthly payment becomes $2,239 a month. So if $1,400 a month was in your budget and your mortgage comes up for renewal and all of a sudden you're looking at a few hundred dollars more a month that you don't have, you're in a pinch. Now, I'm not saying mortgage interest rates are going to 6%, but I'm just doing the math and saying, a 4% change in interest rates over a period of time could put a lot of pressure on people with renewing mortgages, especially the people who are buying at today's prices, who are maybe stretching a little harder than they used to, to qualify in order to buy a property. So this is one of the risks in the marketplace that's being written about. And again, at least for the last 10 years, we've been talking about rising interest rates. And again, we haven't seen them yet. But there's a few more indications around the edges right now that maybe that's going to be it. Josh, have you read much on this uh, of late? Has this been on your newsfeed? Yeah, there's just an article that came through the Globe and Mail today and saying we are heading into the most challenging period to own a home since the interest rate surge of the the early 1980s. So yeah, maybe. Um, It's hard for me to look at the world today and say that we're going back to like super high interest rates like we had back then. Well, I guess that's not the point, right? To, to your point, if even if we see a couple percentage point move, it's still going to be material for people. And the numbers that you pr- presented were, this is a 50% increase in their monthly payment. How many people have the capacity to deal with 50% increase in their monthly payment? And that's, you're using a, a 2% starting point, but some people that got their mortgage over the last year and a half during these pandemic times, they had a interest rate under 2%. So it doesn't take that long to get to a, a much higher monthly payment for them. And do they have the capacity to deal with it or not? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. What, what do you think? You've seen a lot of financial plans, a lot of budgets. Do you think most people can increase their mortgage payment by 50% and still be comfortable? And by the way, you're talking about a $350,000 mortgage. A lot of places in the country, that would be a kiss. You're not going to get that anywhere close to being the uh, the coverage that you need for buying a place these days. As our podcast is consumed nationally and even internationally, I figured I would not you know, focus it on a Toronto-centric mortgage or even a Vancouver-centric mortgage. And again, hopefully by the time your mortgage is up for renewal, you don't owe the $2 million that you bought the home for. And hopefully you had a good down payment. But the other thing to discuss is I've given like 4% might be a, a big move. And that's a huge change in your payment. But if interest rates move 1%, then that's going to push a few people off the edge, right? Because people qualifying for properties right now, again, in my experience in doing planning for people and talking with people, the people who are trying to get into the housing market, number one, some of them are stretching to get their first home or stretching to get that home to raise their family in. So they're running pretty close to the edge. You've got others who are just irrationally exuberant over investing in real estate. You know, so they're willing to lever up as far as anybody's going to lend the money and, you know, because obviously real estate always makes money. So for either those who've chosen to not leave themselves a lot of slack or those that were close to the edge of qualifying, a one or 2% move in your interest rate on renewal 
is going to cause you to change your diet. You're not going to be able to afford the same food. You're not going to be able to afford the same other things if you want to stay in the house. And there's a critical breaking point where they're not going to be able to afford that. Again, I'm not as bold, perhaps, as the Globe and Mail to say this is the, the period we are entering. I'm not definitively saying that. But it's just, this is a real risk. It won't take much of a move in interest rates for some of the people in the housing market to be driven out or to be harmed by this. And then it becomes, as soon as things start to move, if it hits a critical mass and it's going to, the wave hits the next group of people who gave themselves a little bit of slack, but oops, not quite enough. And that group goes down. All right, now we got more momentum and the wave's coming for the next generation. The next, it's a continual is the point. And that's the risk. I mean, that's what, that's what's being written about. And that's what, you know, publications like the globe will say, Hey, we're entering a day. My parents had a 22% mortgage. I remember that vividly. And I think that's the time period that they're comparing to. And no, I don't, I can't see a 22% renewal coming up in the next year or two. I, I don't think we're remotely there. Yeah, you, you can't see that. <laughs> not to say it's not going to happen. Yeah, uh, I can't see it. Yeah, that that would. I think we'd be running for the hills if we saw something like that. We'd be living in caves, hitting each other with sticks again, and money wouldn't matter. That's right. That's right. I think this article did bring up an interesting point: is you're combining potentially increasing interest rates, which really hits the household budget, also with maybe higher inflation as well. I think we're of the opinion that. We don't see super high inflation persistent for, you know, the next five or 10 years. We could see slightly higher inflation. I don't think super, the, the inflation that we're seeing today, 5% plus, I, I don't think that's going to continue for the next five years, but it could be a double whammy for people if you want to call it that. How much more marketable we would be if we did see double digit inflation, how much more exciting that would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we couldn't live with ourselves. So that's just not us. I can't walk around looking that wrong all the time. Yeah. Did did you read about this Zillow company down from, from down South the States? See, this is just the natural progression of the financial world. So you have this persistent belief that real estate's awesome and always goes up. And it's much easier to take advantage of people than it is to inform them. So you, there was going to be somebody somewhere that turned this into a large scale thing and raised a lot of money on it and went out and tried to prove that it could work. The Zillow thing came across my newsfeed, so I it caught my interest. So I went looking at it and they started as a tech company providing a marketplace for renters, I believe was the original iteration of the firm. And they did so quite successfully. They introduced some technology into the space that eliminated the middleman in some regards, back to a previous podcast that we've said. That it sounds like DeFi to me. It's well, I think, I think it had a little bit of stank on it, like a little, little bit of DeFi in it and they had some success with it, but of course you're in the real estate space and you've got a good reputation and you've got investors and obviously buying and selling houses, everybody makes money at. So why don't we do that? Well, they did and they launched it. It was in 2018. They launched a program and they launched algorithms to basically flip houses because there's no way to lose money at this. So let's just get, get at it and go at it in a big way. And I think it didn't go well, Josh. <laughs> I think they have 7,000 homes to sell right now, which I don't know. When you look at the U.S., it's probably not a huge number compared to the overall population, but it seems at, at its surface a large number. And I think more importantly, they say that they're going to lose a few hundred million dollars on the sale of the homes. So yeah, uh, kind of a big deal for a company that's, it's a valuable company, but not one that 
makes losing $300 million a walk in the park. No, so they're laying off all the people and they're shutting down the business entirely. And their press release said that this market is too volatile and unstable to have a reliable business model. Okay. So the individual down the street that is convinced that this real estate thing is, you know, so perfect, everybody can do it. It's going to work out every time. There was just a really big group of smart people with a lot of money behind them that actually did some of the right things by diversifying and not counting on a single property or a single market. They diversified across the whole market to try to make this work. Their conclusion, nope, this is not a reliable investment. Yeah. Turns out it's tough to predict markets a few, three to six months out, Colin. Did you you have any idea about that? Short-term predictions are are not all that accurate. Maybe we should spend some more time thinking about that. <laughs> I'm not that smart, but I could have told you that was a thing. It's one of those ones that they get it right a couple of times and all of a sudden they start to get a little bit of swagger and they got it. So this is a good news story. So they get more money to invest and then nobody really realizes how lucky it was that, that it worked that one time. And, but again, like I said, we would be doing, we'd have a much larger readership if we were talking about how much money you can make buying and selling houses. And if you just subscribe to our program for $1,500 a month, we could give you the book on how to do it. But A, we're not those people. B, we don't believe those people. And C, it's way more interesting for us to get into the weeds and actually debunk things. It's funny because I think they actually shifted their algorithms a little bit over the, the recent time to get a little bit more aggressive with buying homes. And sure enough, shortly after, a little bit too aggressive. So it just shows you that irrational exuberance type of thing. You don't want to get too high when things are going well, because uh, as soon as you do, it could go the other way. And that's, that's absolutely how people react. They're having a bit of luck with something. So they pile a bunch more money into it, even though there's not really an opportunity. And so we have all this money. What are we going to do? So we obviously have to get more aggressive. Why? We have money. Now, that's the wrong reason to get more aggressive. <laughs> You should get more aggressive if there's an upside to it. If it's, we have money and, and we feel an obligation to deploy it. So what are we going to do? We're going to throw it up against the wall. Somebody in that meeting had to say, let's just stop for a second. Maybe we shouldn't deploy any more capital, but that's not how capitalism tends to work. Yep. Anything else? So for the big finish, real estate, it's not terrible. It's more me. For more exciting conversations like this, tune in next week when we're going to talk about stock market. Yeah, it's probably good. (laughs) You can make a bit of money. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth Inc. IA Private Wealth Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth Inc. operates. Notice something. It seems there are a lot of people who would rather try to figure out their lives with an online calculator than air your finances to a human. Stop doing that. You need to talk to someone who can help direct you, tell you where to start with what you've got to make the biggest impact on your future. You can't figure that out at doihaveenoughcash.com, but you can figure it out by chatting with us. 
Call us. It'll be okay. You'll see. Content of this presentation, including facts, views, although we endeavor to ensure its accuracy and completeness, we assume no responsibility for any reliance upon it. This should not be construed to be legal or tax advice, as every client situation is different. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.